can be powerful and positive. They can also be dangerous and divisive. As a liturgical church, we embrace a number of powerful and positive idioms. We believe certain phrases in our liturgical worship context can help collect us and shape us and form us and then send us out into the world feeling more connected and focused and inspired to do the work we have been given to do. On the other hand, there are words or phrases when used in certain combinations that can be idioms that have evolved into dangerous and divisive tools. These are the phrases that are often used to exclude or pass judgment on an individual or a group of people. Today's gospel lesson from the third chapter of John, verses 1 through 17, includes the source of what I believe has become one of the most dangerous and divisive idioms. But before we look at these verses directly, let's set the larger context and understand what is going on in the story. This is a story about a man named Nicodemus, who the Gospel writer tells us is a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews. In other words, this is a religious scholar, a formally trained and deeply devout, if not perhaps somewhat strident follower of Jewish law. The Pharisees were what we might think of as conservative religious followers of, the Judy, Judy, of Judaism. They were suspect and judgmental of anyone or anything they deemed to be different than what their literal and often legalistic interpretation of scripture and the law allowed. They believed they were right, and others were more often than not wrong in belief, in actions, in attitudes, in ways of being faithful. Side note before I go any further, it bears mentioning that I believe there is a little Pharisee in all of us from time to time. Just saying. Anyway, back to the story. We learn in this story that Nicodemus is curious about Jesus as Jesus has begun to garner attention for things that he has done to date, including changing water to wine, followed by making a stir in the temple, by upsetting the table of money changers and condemning them for their practice of selling sacrifices. Jesus' actions in the temple in particular would have been deeply troubling to all the Pharisees, the keepers of the tradition, and absolutely unheard of. Quite the act of, I dare say, prophetic spirituality, as many of us are coming to learn these days. And yet, Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this representative of the most conservative, some might even say strident leaders of the faith, seeks Jesus out. 
So is it any wonder that Nicodemus decides to come and see him at night? Some have said that this may have been in order to conceal his inquiry. So then what happens in their secret nighttime meeting? Following Nicodemus's acclamation that Jesus must be from God, Jesus declares that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above, or some translations say born anew, or more commonly, born again. Which Nicodemus completely misunderstands in his literal interpretation, giving Jesus an opportunity to teach about the expansiveness of God's love and that the Son of Man is to be lifted up as a sign of God's love for all of creation. So it is out of that context, the story of a faithful, curious, doubting man named Nicodemus, that we have come to have the words in Scripture that seem to have taken on a life of their own and what I believe has devolved into a dangerous and divisive idiom. It is through this secret nighttime encounter with Nicodemus that Jesus seems to try to teach about God's radically expansive love using his beautiful, poetic, and metaphorical language, culminating in the words found in John 3.16. John 3.16 is possibly one of the most well-used Bible verses in Scripture. You probably could repeat it for memory. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. It has also been used in deeply caustic and disparaging ways. It's been painted on poster boards. It's been screamed through megaphones. In short, used as biblical code or shorthand to assert exclusion and judgment. Rather than signal the energy and desire of what we call God's love as words expressing a desire for relationship and connection with all people, Ironically, the point of the very next verse, John 3.16 instead has been weaponized and singled out, causing much pain and suffering. So I stand here today with a vulnerable desire to try to push back against what has been hurtful in hopes of reclaiming something worth salvaging on our Lenten journey. So let's get right to it. Beyond the verse John 3.16 being taken out of context, we perhaps should begin with the question, or specifically the idiom, that has evolved over the years to be used against so many. You know the question, right? Are you born again? All right, here's the deal. I have never, ever, ever felt comfortable with answering that question. Because of the unspoken expectation that answering yes would mean agreeing to what I have understood to be a strident, hurtful doctor of doctrine of salvation, a spiritual one and done, if you will, only some are in and many are out kind of spiritual belief or paradigm. And yet, Standing at my front door over the years, 
looking at the faces of well-dressed strangers after answering the doorbell and wishing I hadn't, I have truly struggled at times with what to say when invariably one of them has looked at me and asked, are you born again? And honestly, on more than one occasion, I have been ever so grateful to God that I was not wearing my clerical collar and I could simply feign ignorance or shortage of time or inconvenience. But that never feels very good or prophetic or courageous or true. Have you ever had the experience of wanting to go back in time and give a response that you couldn't think of and wish you had had the courage to say in that moment? I've had a lot of those in my life when it comes especially to this Bible passage and this question. So today, I want to turn over a new leaf and try something different with your help. Could you all collectively, just for a moment, pretend that you are standing at my front door? And oh, by the way, let's pretend that it's summer so I don't feel the need to invite you in. And you are canvassing my neighborhood. And you have just asked me the inevitable question. Ready? All right, on the count of three, one, two, three, just go ahead and ask me, are you born again? Here we go. Hello. What a great and important question. I am so glad you asked. I've spent a lot of time reflecting on what that question means in the context of my life. There are two different but related answers I would like to share and explain. First, am I born again? No, I am not. If being born again means I believe in a singular salvific act of confession. Am I born again? No, I am not. If being born again is a definitive solution or decision negating the importance of a lifetime of inquiry and doubt and community discernment and struggle and joy and deep pain and the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. Am I born again? No, I am not. If being born again means eliminating my need to live a life of evolving and growing faith, deepening curiosity, expectantly hoping and totally dependent on the promises and possibilities that God is always more than anything I will ever fully understand. More generous, more compassionate, more inclusive, more welcoming, more forgiving, and more than my always limited understanding and language will ever be able to encapsulate. You see, I am grounded in a religious tradition that has helped me believe that literally, thank God, God is not finished with me yet. So to that end, here is the second part of my answer. Am I born again? Yes, I am born again. I believe that I am being born again, bit by bit every day in the metaphorical ways I hear through Jesus' teachings. Am I born again? Yes, I believe that I am being born again, growing in faith and love and compassion and generosity with a God defined in any number of ways.
an energy, a source of love, revealed like a universal midwife following me doggedly throughout my life. A force, whether bidden or ignored, endlessly offering little births of insight and healing and reconciliation and creativity along the way. And finally, yes, I believe that I'm being born again because I am an Episcopalian and we learn and lean into a rich tradition, rich tradition that incorporates scripture, reason, and tradition as the three foundational pillars of our spiritual journey. And that at its beginning, middle, and end, our beliefs must be grounded forever in Jesus' commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Okay, I think I do, I'm done. Does that answer your question? Lemonade, anyone? Whew, that felt good. And while I am sure that that scenario will never happen, just thinking that through this week makes a difference for me. Just thinking that through makes a difference and helps me reclaim some of what has been used against me, against my family, against many of you, against many of the people in the world that don't know it's okay to be here. You might want to do the same. You might want to take a little time to discern how you might answer that question, whether or not someone ever knocks on your door and asks you. Especially if you, like me, live with a lot of doubts and a lot of questions about what it truly means to follow Jesus. You see, I think Nicodemus has a lot to offer us from that perspective. He sought out Jesus, not because he believed in him, but because he was curious. He wasn't ready to come over in the light of day, but he found a way in the dark. Again, a beautiful metaphor for me. I know that when I move in the dark, I'm required to slow down, let my eyes adjust, and then move with intention. We may never fully know what took Nicodemus to Jesus that night, nor what happened throughout the rest of his life. But it is a beautiful thing to remember that he is only mentioned two other times in all of Scripture. One brief mention, again, in the seventh chapter of John. And then, beautifully, exquisitely, almost unnoticed, at the very end of Jesus' life, standing at the foot of the cross. As Jesus hangs on the cross, and after all the other disciples have abandoned him for fear of persecution, there we see our Nicodemus one last time. And he's holding in his hands the things that he and Joseph of Arimathea will need to provide Jesus a proper Jewish burial. Somehow, he lived a life that took him from his secret nighttime meeting to bravely standing at the foot of the cross. What I hear and see is a life not unlike ours, a life full of twists and turns, a life trying to balance what is taught by a religious tradition and what is lived through human experience, a life that doesn't always align with our hopes and expectations, and yet can lead us to a place of deep faith in spite of our doubts and fears. I want to end this morning with a poem by the German poet Yehuda Amika, 
It is my charge to all of us this day. My charge that we boldly smash our idols of certainty and prejudice. That we listen with expansive hearts to the language and lived experience of others as they describe their walk with Christ. To resist formulaic answers. To welcome our doubts and questions however and whenever they come, like Nicodemus. And all, may all of this lead us through Lent and to the foot of the cross as well. From the place where we are right by Yehuda Amika. From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. May it be so.